Bitcoiners, welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. Per usual, I'm sitting here across from Ansel Lindner. We're going to be doing something slightly new today. Um, Ale- uh, Ansel, last week, put together a fantastic article breaking down, you know, kind of several aspects of ben- of El Salvador and, you know, what challenges are in front of El Salvador kind of moving forward based on, you know, what the country is actually like, what the country's history is like, demographics, different aspects of the country and how that is going to affect uh, its unprecedented move towards adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, Ansel, this was a fantastic piece. Uh, and I would say a little bit of a more level-headed take on El Salvador, whereas like you either have hyper bull or hyper bear kind of commentary. There hasn't really been something that is level as this that I've seen. So excellent job, but excited to chat with you about it here on FedWatch. I'll hand it to you. Like, Tell me about this piece. What was the impetus of writing it? What kind of went into uh, doing this research? Yeah, it's kind of rare when uh, a analyst will say, oh, well, it's going to be about the same. Because that's that uh, kind of the conclusion here is that Bitcoin it will benefit El Salvador, but it, it won't make a, a gigantic difference. And my impetus behind writing it was because, um, you know, to maybe temper some of the optimism and the enthusiasm. Yes, Bitcoin is going to change your world, uh, but El Salvador adopting Bitcoin isn't going to make El Salvador into some paradise. Um, so uh, that that was why I wrote it. Yeah, I mean, very interesting. And I think maybe it might turn El Salvador into a paradise if they can actually execute on the long enough time horizon. But it seems as though when there's like this kind of excitement and Bitcoin changes the world and Bitcoin fixes this, a lot of people expect that to happen tomorrow, right? Uh, they they uh, they don't un- they don't necessarily, you know, kind of comprehend that this is a very complicated and difficult situation that. Uh, the president of of El Salvador, Bukele, is in, as well as the people of El Salvador and all of the international stakeholders involved as well. Yes, and I tried to touch on the international stakeholders in the piece with the IMF and the World Bank and and all of that stuff, um, as well as, you know, international relations in trade deals within Central America and with the United States and stuff like that. So yeah, I tried to touch on all of that in the piece. Bukele is a fascinating character because uh, I try to tie him into a lineage of El Salvador politics. And in El Salvador, it's a very unique situation. So for its entire history, it's been kind of a meeting place of cultures. So if you go back to you know the pre-Columbian era, you have uh, Mayan and Aztec and Lenca, some other C- Central American peoples, and they kind of all meet in what is today the El Salvador area. So um, it has a long history of many different groups, many different stakeholders within the country internally, and then bringing that into like the 19th and 20th centuries, you know, you see. Um, political strongmen you see a gang type structure for a uh, government and even into the 90s um, Bukele is kind of he's much more friendly to the west much more friendly to free markets and to bitcoin Um, but he I see him similar in some of his uh, tactics that he's used recently as somewhat of a continuation of the same idea that El Salvador has always been in the same sort of situation so that's why i say uh looking forward if if you you know look forward 50 or 100 years el salvador will probably be generally in the same place that it is today maybe a little bit better off okay well i mean unpopular opinion there uh i definitely think that there's a lot of execution risk when it comes to uh, el salvador you know adopting bitcoin but as a bitcoin believer to hear you say that it's not going to make any sort of meaningful change to the country. It's a little bit disheartening to some degree because I personally believe that there's second and third order positive effects to adopting Bitcoin and adopting sound money. And, you know, even talking to the Bitcoin evangelists in El Salvador and listening to them on interviews, you know, they, they seem to be feeling the immediate effects of adopting Bitcoin in their community. Yeah. And I do say in the piece that, 
I expect it, it to double or even triple the standard of living in El Salvador. And that's a significant impact. But then if you look at f- from a broader scale, that just puts it on par with Panama in Central America. So it, it's it can be very good for El Salvador, um, but it's not going to bring El Salvador into the range of, say, a Hong Kong or a Singapore, some of these other really small, um, very high standard living places. Does that make okay, sense? Okay, so before we get into the kind of actual breakdown, because you got very, very thorough with this analysis. This is not just, you know, some off-the-cuff opinion here. But can you just kind of talk a little bit about, like, what would it take for uh, a small nation like El Salvador to truly put itself on the global scale, something like a Hong Kong or a Singapore, which is, you know, obviously when it comes to per capita punching power, they're they're punching way above their weight. Um, but again, they are, you know, relatively smaller populations, kind of similar to El Salvador, which has fewer citizens than, you know, most American cities, right? Los Angeles, Miami, they're all bigger than El Salvador. And these are just American cities. Yeah. So putting on the geopolitical hat, um, you have to, I mean, obviously free markets are going to be a big thing. So, um, lower corruption in, in your government, um, you know, uh, just corruption in society, low violence, that type of thing uh, that will help free markets function properly. And then the next thing is geographic location. So if you look at um, Hong Kong or Singapore specifically, these are very, very small countries uh, or Hong Kong maybe isn't a country anymore, but uh, you know, it's a very, very small uh, uh, geographic area, but they are on choke points of international trade. So for El Salvador to really be uh, take a step up the notch into not just being a regional influence in Central America, but maybe being a continental influence in North America, uh, they would have to have uh, access to trade routes. And really, they just they just don't have that. So I don't see even with the perfect execution and the perfect free markets, um, El Salvador will be a nice place to live, but it will never be. you know, a North American player, I guess. Okay, well, I mean, even in those situations, you know, granted the kind of geographical limitations, um, it as a first step for Bitcoin and Bitcoin continuing to, uh, you know, peripherally, I can't pronounce that, but, um, you know, throughout these, these economies that don't necessarily have sovereignty and financial control, it's going to be very interesting. Um, let's just jump into this article because, again, you touch on a lot of different things, you know, in terms of the history, economy, geography, demographics. Like you did the real analysis that people need to be doing around uh, this kind of macroeconomic situation. Uh, do you want to just jump into like going a little bit more deeper into, you know, the history and the politics? Yeah, so, um, well, I did I did cover a lot of it right there early on in our conversation, but um, before the Spanish came, there was um, many different cultures that kind of went back and forth in this area. Um, The reigning culture at the time of the Spanish coming was the Peepils, and they came, they were related to central Mexico, so to the Aztecs or the Toltecs, and they came down and they, they built a few different types of megalithic structures, but they never like flourished as much in El Salvador as they did in central Mexico. And to me, I draw the the geopolitical conclusion that it is due to the geographic limitations of the area that El Salvador sits. So um, uh, then when the Spanish came, they were uh, incorporated into New Spain, and that lasted for 300 years, as people uh, probably know. And then when they they broke apart from Spain after the Mexican War of Independence, they formed the Federal Republic uh, of Central America. And by the end of that, that was a very short experiment, only about 40 years, I think. And uh, at the end of that, San Salvador was the capital. Um, And it eventually broke apart with all of these disparate Central American cultures like Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. They all had their own structure uh, and culture uh, in their own area and the federation fell apart and i kind of uh, said this is a great parallel for thinking about this region in general that san salvador was 
the capital city when it fell apart. So it's kind of maybe a cultural hub of Central America or uh, maybe not a hub, but it, it kind of encapsulates Central American culture in El Salvador. And then it fell apart because you just can't keep uh, such a, uh, a region like that that is so geographically diverse with mountain ranges and rainforests and not very many good harbors, um, not a ton of arable land or agricultural land that, um, that you can use cheaply throughout the year. So it's just an area that is uh, prone to decentralization. So then that, after I think 1841, I think is when it, yeah, 1841 is when they declared their new government. And since then it was um, kind of dominated by strong political strongmen. Okay. They didn't even have fair and freely contested elections. Uh, their first one was in 19, I have to look back at my piece. Oh man, it was in like 1931 was their first freely contested election. And that only that government only lasted for nine months before a military coup. And so you can see this, this, the place of El Salvador lends itself to this type of decentralization, this type of kind of internal fighting. Um, right now, there is this very popular lead, leader in uh, Bukele, and he is, I think, very good for the country. I think he has already done great things, and he's going to continue to do good things for the country. But uh, he might be his, you know, his regime might be the high point of uh, centralization for the country. You know, it's it's bound to break up into smaller regional power structures and internal structure, uh, internal conflict. So, um, when, when you look, that's that's one reason why when you look ten years out. It looks very good for El Salvador, but if you start looking 20, 30, 40 years out, you know, that that kind of uh, uh, breakup of the centralized power is going to come back. Very interesting. So, I mean, ultimately, most Bitcoin, I'll say hardcore Bitcoin enthusiasts think that Bitcoin will force countries to break down, decentralize, to become more uh, localized, right? They think that that's going to be a second and third order effect. And you see El Salvador is already having those tendencies, right? Like, you know, the cultures are kind of broken up. If you look at other countries that are having this kind of, let's just say, uh, difficulty keeping the entire geography together. It's because there's different cultures with very unique identities uh, that occupy smaller portions of that. You can look at like Barcelona and the Catalan region in Spain, uh, but you know, there's countless of these across the globe. So you see El Salvador is not really in its current state being very stable as it is, right? And that might cause further fracturing despite or because of Bitcoin uh, in the future. Yeah, and as they centralize power uh, right now, because they're doing a lot of arrests of the gang members, they're doing some deals with gang members to uh, minimize violence in the country, and they're they're doing a great job so far right now. But you know, once the power centralizes to the central government, you're going to have corruption and you're going to have uh, infighting within the government. Maybe after Bukele leaves, right after the strong central leader um, kind of exits the scene, so. Um, that yeah, I do. I do see that this area has a very strong decentralized uh, nature to it, and it will probably return. But it's along with that though too is violence. There is this decentralization in El Salvador, but there's also a violence. Um, hopefully, that violence doesn't return. Hopefully, it's just like infighting of power politics, and my company is going to take over your company or something like that. But uh, I fear that this region is prone to actual violence when you decentralize the power. And I mean, does Bitcoin have anything to do with that dynamic? Um, or you just think that, that it's inherent to kind of the region, the cultures, the history? Um. Yeah, Bitcoin will probably mitigate it to some degree. And Bitcoin d does fit Venezuela, uh, Venezuela uh, El Salvador's uh, very unique kind of strengths. So it has some very big weaknesses geographically and politically, but it has some very unique strengths. And one of those is the um, 
clean energy, you know, with geothermal and they have a lot of hydro potential there. And Bitcoin is a very good fit for that because a small nation, like let's say the UAE over there in the Persian Gulf, um, they are a very small country, but they can export their energy, right? So they can become wealthy because they can export their energy around the world. Well, El Salvador is maybe not equally as blessed with energy, but they have a very high capacity for energy if they they can um, exploit everything, but they cannot export it, right? You can't export geothermal energy, but you can mine Bitcoin with it and use that as your export or um, use that as your industry. So I think that Bitcoin does fit a lot of these little niche things within the country that turn some weaknesses into strengths. So Bitcoin will benefit. Bitcoin will benefit the country. It just won't turn turn it into a paradise on earth. Okay. So uh, very sobering uh, and uh, realistic words probably here. Um, next in the article, you talk about the economy. You already kind of mentioned uh, some of your expectations in terms of increased GDP and things like that. Uh, do you kind of want to talk about like some of the history around uh, Venezuela? Or sorry, gee, I keep saying Venezuela, but um, El Salvador's uh, El Salvador's economy and uh, and some of these trade deals and different things that have kind of you know happened in the past that you know are setting up the country in a specific way today. Yeah. So they they um, back in two thousand four they signed this Central American free trade agreement with the United States. So it was Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and the Dominican Republic. And so that is a very good thing. It is the second largest kind of trade agreement for the United States other than uh, NAFTA with Mexico and Canada. So it is an important thing for the United States. And my, my idea geopolitically of the future is that the U.S. will continue to be a massive player, probably the global hegemon for the foreseeable future. And so anytime um, a country like El Salvador can get close and have good relations with the United States, the better. They also have, obviously, the uh, remittances, which is a big part of their economy. Uh, so they, they're a very small country with only 6 million people, not a lot of opportunity for their best and their brightest. And so a lot of times their best and their brightest, you know, these are people, scientists or doctors or businessmen, uh, actors and actresses, uh, even some politicians have, you know, immigrated to the United States. So um, a lot of these, uh, the talent has gone abroad and they send remittances back. And so these remittances are a huge part of their economy, up to 25% of their GDP. So uh, that is, if you can have a good trade agreement with the United States, you can have friendly relations, and you have a lot of uh, your countrymen working in that country and sending remittances back, uh, that is a good overall um, relationship to have. The other part of, well, there's two more parts of their economy I think are very interesting are the uh, free trade zones. These are uh, zones they have set up for um, for exports. So the businesses that are set up here are supposed to be export oriented. Um, and, you know, imports into those regions are going to be tax free and then exports are going to be tax free. It, it does a lot for building up industry within the country. Uh, so that is a benefit for everybody. It, it provides higher paying jobs um, and it's it it's it's a multi-partisan effort. It's not just Bukele set these up. They've been around for a long time, um, for probably 10, 15 years. And so this is a multi-partisan effort. There's an idea in the country uh, liking free trade. Uh, so I think that's a big benefit as well. And then lastly is tourism. Of course, they have a huge potential for tourism. They have great beaches and great surf. I think it's some of the best surfing beaches. Um, in the Americas. In the yeah, in the no, world. some okay. of the best in the world. Okay, uh, in the world are found in El Salvador. So they have a huge uh, opportunity for tourism and Bitcoin being global and borderless, uh, you know, being a very good currency for travel. Uh, that is also a niche that Bitcoin can help fill. Uh, but I just say the biggest, biggest part here in my mind is remittances, because even all of their free trade zones and their import exports, uh, you know, if you look at all these individual parts of their economy, remittances dwarf everything else. 
So all of their exports combined, remittances are double all of their exports combined as part of GDP. So I think that Bitcoin obviously being tailor-made for remittances like this um, is a huge benefit. All right, let's take a quick break from that episode. I want to tell you guys about our sponsor. It is Bitcoin 2022 conference. I am sure you saw the videos. You may have been there in person. Bitcoin 2021 was an absolute smashing success. It was the biggest conference in Bitcoin history, crypto history, whatever history of the digital asset sphere. Bitcoin is number one and the Bitcoin 2021 conference is number one with a bullet. It was an absolutely incredible time. I was working my ass off the whole time, but I got to meet so many incredible community members. And I think the best testament to how amazing Bitcoin 2021 was, was not just all of the amazing, you know, accolades and, uh, and compliments that I got personally and our team got, but also it's the skin in the game in Bitcoin 2022. We have already sold close to 1500 tickets. That is more than 10% of the people, everyone who went to Bitcoin 2021 have already purchased tickets to Bitcoin 2022. We have not released a date. We have not released a city. We have not released anything. That is the biggest compliment. That is the biggest skin in the game of the community being down for this conference. Bitcoin 2022 is going to be bigger than Bitcoin 2021. It is going to be better than Bitcoin 21 in every single way. And we are going to be bringing you the best opportunity to mingle with the biggest, the baddest, the most Bitcoin people on the planet. So join the revolution. Go to b.tc forward slash conference. Get your tickets today. I don't know what the ticket prices are. They are going up. I think they're $249 right now. We just rolled out fiat ticket uh, purchases. All the tickets purchased before today were all purchased in BTC. So get it, guys. Get it. Get this ticket. Be at Bitcoin 2022. See you there. Bitcoiners, I want to tell you guys about The Deep Dive. The Deep Dive is a new premium newsletter from the Bitcoin Magazine team in conjunction with my man, BTCization, Dylan LeClaire. Dylan is such a multifaceted and wide-ranging analyst. He does everything from on-chain analytics to macro uh, analysis to uh, you know hash rate and all that kind of good stuff. He does it all. He breaks down everything that's happening every single day with his daily dive. He's going to dive into what is happening in the market that day. So that way you don't have to pay attention to Twitter. You don't have to pay attention to anything else. You can just pay attention to the deep dive and he has you covered. And at the end of the week, guess what? You get a weekly recap. And at the end of the month, hey, we have a freaking report, a beautiful PDF breaking down all the activity of that entire month, what it means for Bitcoin, what you can expect moving forward. The Bitcoin market is going to moon. We are here to make sure that we maximize your stack. Go to members.bitcoinmagazine.com to sign up today. And if you use promo code BITS, you can get one month for free. So again, the deep dive, I've been checking it out every day and you should too. Back to the show. Yeah, and I mean, just to kind of point out the remittances angle, um, these are the countries, again, that are going to be most prone to adopting Bitcoin because if they can cut those remittance fees substantially, that it's going to have a really meaningful impact on GDP. And the fact that, you know, they rely so heavily on remittances is kind of a symptom of the fiat system. Whereas, you know, fiat is centralizing talent into specific areas where, you know, the money is being printed uh, and, you know, people are being drained out of these countries. I would highly recommend uh, to the listeners to go check out the Bitcoin Magazine podcast that Aaron Van Wordham did um, with several members of uh, the Bitcoin Beach team. And they were talking about how for the first time, you know, the kids, their number one dream isn't to leave El Salvador and to go to America, that they actually see a future here. And, you know, hopefully Bitcoin can make an impact as in, you know, it helps these localities, you know, maintain their their talent. You know, brain drain is a huge issue if you are not living in a first world country. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, I think these free trade zones might be might help along that way to get some um, kind of international businesses in there. Um, but I think they will always have that problem. Just being there, they have they have the highest population density uh, in Central America. You know, they don't have a ton of um, unique uh, 
I guess, strengths for their country around like being on trade routes or being a, a banking hub or anything like that. So I think always there's going to be this drain and hopefully it doesn't go so far. Maybe it doesn't go into um, the United States. Maybe it goes to Mexico. Maybe it goes to Costa Rica or to South America somewhere. But um, I think they will always have this brain drain because of just their geographic realities. I find it very interesting how much you focus on geography because that's not changing. And, you know, yeah. geography is, it's very, very important how the, you know, these different jurisdictions can maneuver themselves and can align themselves. And geography has a lot to do with resources as well. So um, y'all, Ansel is the best for this reason, man. He, he really has a holistic view uh, on, on what's happening. Um, but with that being said, rivers, rail, uh, rails, roads, ports, you know, could be better and they can be improved, right? Uh, do you kind of want to talk about your kind of analysis around maybe just the, the commercial potential of El Salvador? Yeah, so I broke down their geography um, in, you know, waterways, and they have three specific kind of uh I guess you would call water regions in their country. On the, the western side, they have a border with Guatemala and they have a river basin there. Then they have the Lempo River, which is kind of the large uh, basin that covers most of the country, but it's not navigable. Uh, so they don't have a lot of navigable miles of river. And then the last kind of water region is the Gulf of Fosenka in the south or in the east, southeast. And that is a border region between Honduras and Nicaragua. So um, all in all, they don't have really any navigable waterways. They don't really have any uh, miles of commercial railroad. Uh, they do have a good uh, road system, which is a benefit that they're actually small because I think their, their port, their main port to the capital is only like 50 miles away. So that's, you know, the entire country is, is pretty small. Um, but geographically, they don't, you know, from a transportation aspect, it's, it's not very conducive to a high level of commercial activity. Makes sense. So, I mean, let's talk about future projects, right? Again, you kind of teased out the potential of exporting energy, you know, can we reasonably expect Bitcoin to make an impact here in terms of the, the you know, large gap that El Salvador needs to bridge in terms of, you know, kind of their logistics infrastructure, as well as their ability to export, um, you know, some of their natural resources? Again, you talked about the energy, but uh, there's a lot here. Yeah. Um, well, one of the benefits of not having navigable rivers is that you can put a lot of dams on them. And so the, the hydropower potential of El Salvador is pretty high. Uh, they also have these volcanoes. I think they have four active volcanoes uh, within their borders. Uh, they've already harnessed, started to harness uh, at one or two of them. But, you know, there's a huge amount of potential left for geothermal. And those are a great fit for Bitcoin. They've actually been, uh, in recent years, really trying to attract uh, investors specifically probably from the United States or, or other Western investors to come in and help build up this potential of clean energy. And maybe with Bitcoin, now they'll have even another selling point to do that. And I, I, I do think that this could be a pretty quick uh, reaction, uh, especially with the whole stuff from China going on with the, the hash rate moving out of China. It's going to go try to find a new home and maybe not El Salvador will get it right away. But uh, if they can build up their capacity for this clean energy and cheap energy, then Bitcoin will easily fit slot in there real quick. I mean, how long does it take to get a, a big mining farm set up? It's, it's not going to take five years. You know, it will take maybe a year to get the plans, to get the hash rate and to get it going. Um, so I think that can that can uh, benefit the country pretty quickly. Well, one of my favorite things about your analysis, and this is the first time, and not the first time, but you are one of the first people that really turned me on to thinking about uh, a analysis based on demographics and how important demographics are in kind of predicting what the future of an economy has. 
Um, let's talk about the demographics in El Salvador. Okay, so they have pretty good demographics. Um, uh, if you look at, uh, if you guys go to the piece, I could share my screen real quick. Can I do that? Yes, sir. Okay. So you can see this um, demographics pyramid. It's really heavy on the bottom, which is what you want to see. That means it's a fairly healthy demographics. If you look at Japan or China or Europe, uh, they're going to be really heavy at the top and then narrower as you go down. And that's that means your population is declining. So El Salvador has a fairly healthy demography at this point. Okay, I'm going to stop sharing. Um, one of the things as well, like they're, they're starting to uh, be scared that they will get caught in this kind of modern phenomenon of not having kids, right? Not meeting replacement rate. And so uh, they're, uh, they will end up getting that upside down demographic pyramid. Uh, but some of the things that help them is one, they are a fairly religious country and usually religious families, you know, they have uh, uh, family structures very important to them and, and usually they have a higher rate of kids. Also with the remittances, now I haven't seen anybody say this before, so I don't know how on this is, but it, with a higher rate of remittances, you actually have the ability to, um, you know, maybe support more children in that family. So you have one one family member or two family members move abroad and send money home. Now your family can support more children, right? And so I think that the, there's a few things about El Salvador that might stave off this uh, a coming demographic collapse, which most countries look like they'll eventually get to in this modern era for one reason or another. All of these demographic pyramids are inverting. So um, hopefully El Salvador can stay uh, stay away from that. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, demographics are so important. Um, you know, at here, me and you constantly doing this macro analysis, um, it really like sets things into perspective on like the future of these uh, economies. And it's very interesting, again, see like the West is just in this conundrum. And even, you know, Japan is in this conundrum. And Where's the potential? Where are the demographics? It's South, right? It's in Africa. It's in Latin America. And honestly, just, just that one fact alone, plus the fact that Bitcoin has fewer hurdles to hop, um, makes me much more bullish on the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, um, you've said that before, and I, I kind of agree with you on that, um, at least demographics-wise. So even China is in this problem or has this problem. They are the fat right now. China is the fastest aging population in the world. It's the fastest aging population the world has ever seen. It is in a demographic decline like we have never seen in China. And so I think that affects everybody, all of these major economies in the Northern Hemisphere. So the Southern Hemisphere could, you know, this is the era where maybe they become, maybe there's a next China. Maybe Australia becomes the next China. No, they have bad demographics too, but um, maybe like South America, they... Brazil, who knows, maybe somebody down there becomes the next China, the next manufacturing capital of the world, and um, they have the demographics for it where everyone else is depopulating. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you, you mentioned South America, but Africa has very much been uh, a uh, geography that people are very, very bullish on, and when it comes to demographics as well, they're very, very young, a lot of future... Uh, you know, labor potential there. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I personally am not that bullish on South America or Africa, but I think that they will have good demographics. And so perhaps, yes, those are going to be where a lot of the, um, you know, unskilled factories are, where, where there's a lot of uh, capable, well, I know Africa is really blessed with natural resources. Uh, so maybe they become, uh, like I said, maybe Nigeria becomes the new China. Who knows? So let's jump into Bitcoin. You know, we've been talking about how Bitcoin fits into this, but in the in the way you formatted your article, it's kind of the last thing you talk about before your conclusion. But do you want to just kind of dive into Bitcoin specifically and some of these points that you made in the article? Yeah, so I kind of picked out three things. So I tried to do 
as comprehensive and brief uh, coverage of the entire country in the first part of the article. And then I say, okay, well, out of this unique situation that El Salvador finds itself in, how can Bitcoin really come in and make a difference? Or how do I think that it will, will happen? And so I pick out these three sections of remittances, uh, Bitcoin mining and tourism. I think Bitcoin really fits into there. And I kind of break it down um, a little more in depth. But overall, my conclusion I come up with is a doubling of the GDP in the next um, decade and possibly a tripling of the GDP in the next 20 years. So just to put that into perspective, like what does that kind of performance stack up against other other nations that could you know grow and maybe even past uh, past GDP improvements? Um, just kind of like to me when you it kind of it's strange to hear <laughs> GDP might double and on the flip side it's not going to be that big of a deal in terms of the grand scheme of things. Yeah, well, when you look at purchasing power parity, um, I mean I'd have to bring up. Let me bring up the. Uh, Sorry about this. Uh, per capita Guys, I keep, GDP. I keep hitting Ansel with these uh, off-the-cuff questions. So uh, I apologize, Ansel, for uh, for always putting you on the spot here. No, that's cool. Uh, I just want to make sure I get my numbers right. So um, Central America GDP. Um, we have Panama is the largest by far. So they... Let's see. They are growing at uh, 10% Panama, and they have a per capita GDP of double of, well, hold on, triple, almost triple of El Salvador. Costa Rica is um, almost double what El Salvador is right now. And so you can see like some of these other Central American countries per capita GDP, uh, El Salvador is actually ranking pretty low. And so even if they double, they're just going to be really good within Central America. And if they triple, then they will become the best in Central America or the highest in Central America. And then they, you know, we can go up from there. But um, yeah, I think that they have opportunity to really, I, I've said, I said in my piece that they've always punched above their weight in Central America. And I think that this, their specific, um, uh, you know, strengths of tourism potential and mining potential um, and remittance potential is so great that they'll probably continue to punch above their weight and maybe even be one of the best economies in Central America. All right. Well, a little bit of bullishness there, y'all. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that El Salvador is going to be a shining example of Bitcoin moving forward. Uh, but with that being said, there's still a lot of, you know, a lot of difficulties in front of them. You know, Ansel kind of had much more of a historic looking analysis and look forward here. But, you know, I've spoken to several members of, you know, uh, different groups in El Salvador who are trying to move things forward for Bitcoin, as well as Aaron Van Wordham, our technical editor, who's been in El Salvador for the past few weeks. Um, and there's a lot of headwinds. You know, there's a lot of difficulties. And Bukele, while, you know, it seems as though he has the best uh, intentions of the country, um, obviously is not perfect. And within the country, it's not without enemies, right? And now Bitcoin is almost like this politicized thing where it's like, if you're pro Bukele, then you're open to Bitcoin. But if you're against Bukele, then Bitcoin is is just equally bad as everything else he is doing. Um, so there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of unknown information. There's a lot of kind of uh, uncertainties. And in terms of a timeline, you know, the government and Bukele, they're trying to launch their Bitcoin wallet and the Bitcoin legal tender law by the end of August. So that's coming up very, very quickly. And even from the beginning, I thought to myself personally, wow, that's very ambitious. And what happens if they can't hit that ambitious, ambitious timeline? Um, okay. So you said, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see what Aaron Van Wordham has to say about all of this. Um, I hope he writes something up. Uh, and yeah, a lot of the firsthand, I mean, obviously I don't have, I've never been to El Salvador. I don't plan to go to El Salvador and uh, I don't have any firsthand experience of the people or the locations that I'm writing about here, but taking a historical perspective, a geopolitical perspective, these are, you know, I tried to identify geopolitical realities and 
you can have a lot of fluctuations in the short term. Decade to decade, you can have a really good decade or a really bad decade. And so, I, but you, you need to obey these geopolitical realities. So it's going to be around a trend. And um, maybe a lot of people are, are, you know, finally someone has adopted Bitcoin as legal tender and they have a bunch, they're very, very bullish on this news. Um, great. I think it will be very good for the country, but this is not going to, like I kept, keep saying, it's not going to turn El Salvador into uh, a powerhouse or anything. Before we get back to the episode, I want to tell you guys about Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin Magazine is the oldest publication covering Bitcoin, and we've been covering Bitcoin since 2012. Y'all, I'm so proud to be working for Bitcoin Magazine. We spend all day trying to scour the internet for the top news, the top plebs, the top subjects, conversations, everything that has to do with BTC, the asset, BTC, the culture, BTC, the revolution. We are here for it. We are here for BTC and BTC only, and we want to give back to the Bitcoin community. Hit us up if you want to contribute, and uh, yeah, go follow us on Twitter. Go uh, subscribe to this podcast. Go follow us on YouTube. All of the places that you can find Bitcoin Magazine, we are there. Instagram, Reddit, everywhere. We're there. We're there. Follow us for the best Bitcoin knowledge. Back to the episode. All right. Well, I think we can we can transition from speaking about El Salvador specifically and talk about Bitcoin a little bit more generally. Um, as we sit here, Bitcoin is trading under thirty thousand uh, dollars. Today, I believe is uh, is the nineteenth um, of July. So, or sorry, the the twentieth of July. So, uh, the day before this podcast is live. Um, Ansel, let's talk about Bitcoin in general, and you know what you're seeing, uh, you know, on the chart. Uh, as well as elsewhere. Well, the chart has looked very bullish, or sorry, very bearish for the last couple of weeks. Um, if we go back to, I want to get the dates right. Sorry about this, guys. If you go back into mid-April, it did look like Bitcoin could recover quickly and bounce back up. But ever since then, it broke back down into the the low 30,000s, and it has looked very bearish and there's a couple things that i've been watching with the gbtc unlock which looks to be you know kind of fake news in a way um uh, a couple other things like the sec decision on the new etfs there just seems to be a wait and see approach right now and in that kind of environment price can trickle downwards so i think that's what we're seeing i don't know if we'll see a big sell-off these things usually end with a big wick to the downside but uh if that is the case, it'll be extremely brief. So you think Bitcoin holds this price level? Well, like I said, the, the typical pattern is to have a, a massive sell-off and a big wick to mark the bottom. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but it, this time could be different. But if, if it does wick down like that, I think it will be brief. Gotcha. So... What price level could it wick down to? A lot of analysts are saying twenty four thousand. Um, I was calling twenty four thousand when we when we went up to forty two thousand. Uh, this was back in January. I was calling for twenty four thousand, and we never quite reset down to that level. We just stopped at this twenty nine thousand, right about where we are today, um, and. So a lot of analysts are saying back down to 24,000. Some I see are saying to test the previous all-time high of 2017. So down to about 20,000. Um, I don't think the market will hit either of those. You know, it'll try to cheat people out, uh, you know, wreck as many people as possible. So if there is a wick, I, I wouldn't bet on making it to 24, but maybe it gets down to 27,000. All right. Well, I have a limit order there uh, sitting at about 26. So maybe that I should I should push that up a little bit. Um, but with that being, yeah, with that being said, like the key for me outside of everything else is just seeing how empty the mempool is. So uh, the backlog of transactions is non-existent, right? And this is actually uh, a first in what you would call a capitulation event as well, right? So, you know, what that's telling me is that 
in terms of like actual skin in the game, people utilizing the network, it's very little. And then on top of that, you know, a lot of this price action is kind of happening exclusively on centralized platforms, right? Um, it's not hitting the blockchain per se, which I don't know if you can uh, learn anything from that, but it, it's kind of telling me that, hey, the Bitcoiners are holding and these new hands, uh, these new buyers, these people who came in at, you know, potentially uh, above 50K, um, <laughs> they're not using Bitcoin correctly. They're still on centralized exchanges and they're the ones who are setting the marginal price right now. Yeah, there is a dynamic as well with Lightning Network. So Lightning Network has been increasing steadily over the years since uh, 2017. And so who knows, maybe Lightning Network is taking, what, 20% of the load off of the network. And so that marginal amount is able to keep the mempool uh, that much lower. Uh, Some of the use cases that were being built for on-chain now are built with Lightning. And so that takes off some some transactions. So um, it, it is a big signal that fees are so low. I agree with you. But uh, I, I don't know what conclusions to draw from that other than maybe this is maybe that means there's strong hands. And so we won't see a big wick to the downside because there's actually a lot of strong hands. What are your thoughts on that? Well, all the on-chain, you know, analysts and people who are kind of looking at Glassnode and these other uh, platforms that are trying to build some heuristics into the blockchain data, you know, they're saying, yes, strong hands are holding and accumulating, whales are holding and accumulating, and then new holders are dumping. Um, So that's what the on-chain heuristics from Glassnode and others are saying. But again, like, it's hard hard to really tell. And again, these are just heuristics. Uh, So I don't know how much of it is just narrative, but from my gut, you know, and from my interactions with the Bitcoin community, um, it seems like there's a lot of bears, a lot of angst, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, people are still stacking, people are still here. And uh, despite, let's just say metrics across the board in terms of viewership, pages, that kind of stuff for Bitcoin Magazine, kind of seeing a local bottom or a local low, um, it does seem like the the uh, the hardcore convicted cohort is still larger and active. Yeah, it's very interesting too. About um, I mean, we've talked about this macro stuff now for almost sixty episodes, right? I think we're on fifty nine, and uh, I think there is a lot of worry on the macro side. So, like we said last. Uh, episode the entire global economy seems to be uh, peaking in this reflationary cycle and possibly rolling over uh, in the next few months and so that could also be affecting the bitcoin price um maybe going towards a risk-off environment and that will affect bitcoin the dollar is strengthening so uh, from a macro point of view uh, it makes sense that bitcoin would sell off here Um, i think it's very important too that one of the reasons why I've been stressing that this deflation versus inflation debate is because I don't want Bitcoin to wrongly uh, or people to panic sell Bitcoin because we have, you know, some sort of deflationary shock or it doesn't look like inflation is coming again, like it probably won't. So, um, you know, it's very important to know how Bitcoin is going to fit into the future. We've talked about that a lot on this show. And so... That's all I got for that. Yeah, well, I mean, again, Bitcoin solves a lot of problems, but you need to diagnose the right issues. And that's the hard part, right? Because the current system is all about lack of transparency. Like the way that it can operate is through through a shroud of deception and hiding and papering over details and facts and... uh, Again, it's really hard to diagnose the initial issue. The central bankers can't diagnose it. All the fiat economists can't uh, diagnose it. And it seems as though, you know, Bitcoiners are having a difficult time diagnosing exactly what is wrong. But with that being said, maybe Bitcoin doesn't solve the current issue, but are the current issues with the financial system. But it is a completely separate, independent alternative that, you know, has no inflation, that has no deflation, that is a fixed supply 
perfectly scarce monetary asset. And hopefully the world can onboard to it so we can just forget about the chaos that is the fiat system today. Yeah, perfectly said. I mean, I think that we can't also forget that Bitcoin is a, a veddling good. So as price goes down, demand actually goes down. And as price goes up, demand goes up. So we, we will have these very wild swings and it needs to find a very, what's the new term? Diamond hands. It has to find a new diamond hands bottom. Uh, and perhaps that's 30,000, but uh, we'll find out. All right, Ansel, thanks so much for, for writing up this awesome post about El Salvador and what is happening with Bitcoin adoption there. Uh, we'll be able to track how uh, how close your analysis is to reality. I think the next 40 so days are going to be very, very exciting for El Salvador and Bitcoin in general uh, and excited to bring a lot more uh, insight into that. But until then, to all the listeners, you guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks. You can find the podcast, of course, at FedWatch and at Bitcoin Magazine. And you can find Ansel at Ansel Lindner. Ansel's raising his hand. He has one more thing to say. Yeah, I just want to say um, that don't don't worry about this 40 days, the 45 days. If they don't get it implemented, then, you know, they'll push it another 90 days or 180 days. But eventually, El Salvador uh, with Bukele at the helm, they will get Bitcoin in there. So, all right, I love it. Um, yeah, hey, uh, hopefully, I know that it is a complex situation. So, hopefully, we can make continue uh, to make adoption happen uh, on an independent uh, individual level while the government gets their shit together over there. Um, so, that's the most optimistic thing about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin doesn't have to wait for the government and these plans to actually make inroads into adoption. Uh, so I'm optimistic because of that. But until next time, Bitcoiners, catch us on the other side. Give us those five-star reviews. We appreciate all of your listens. And we appreciate you guys sharing the show and all the positive feedback. I've been getting great, great feedback on the show. And we're going to continue doing it. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.